0: Alright, the message is entitled, The Mystery of the Trinity. The Mystery of the Trinity, this is part one. We're going to do three parts. And um, we want to look at the Trinity, a doctrine hard to understand um, by some, and completely denied by others. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity, very simply put, is um, the Christian belief that God is comprised of three persons existing Um, eternally in one nature and essence. Okay, The oneness is so real that it flows into the three persons. Yet there are distinct in-persons, but are one in the substance and the fundamental nature that the three persons possess, as we'll see. In the study of the nature of God, if you were with us when we did our theology, there are two important things about God's nature. First, God is spirit, so he doesn't have an eye, hand, feet like you and I do. When that type of language is used in scripture, it's called anthropomorphism, human terms to describe the actions of God so we can know what he's doing. But it doesn't mean he has an eye. Because he says you're under the shadow of his wing. Is he a chicken now? Okay, there are figurative terms, metaphorically and all that, to describe what God is doing. So the first thing is that God is spirit. And you find that in John 24:24 24, 24, when Jesus is speaking to the woman of Samaria, those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth, okay? Secondly, that God is personal. And when Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, 1 through 3, That is the real Lord's prayer. It's not the Our Father who art in heaven. That's a prayer model for us, what we should pray, what it should contain. Because Jesus could have never prayed that prayer It asked for the forgiveness of sins. He had no sin. The real Lord's prayer is in John 17 as he prays to the Father before he goes to the cross. Now the doctrine of the Trinity falls under the study of the nature of God and Two other important aspects to the nature of God are found in the nature of the Trinity. First, unity. Second, triunity. Okay, and we'll elaborate on this as we go by. Unity and triunity. And only God can illuminate the Scriptures and give to us understanding regarding the Trinity. Now, if God declares the doctrine of the Trinity and it permeates all of Scripture, then he gives us the ability through the Spirit of God to understand it. Not to its full end, as we will see, but it's very clearly understood by the child of God. If you're not a Christian, the Trinity is an enigma to you, completely. And yet many people have allowed their intellect to rob them of their belief in the doctrine of the Trinity. Jehovah Witnesses do not believe in the Trinity, okay, and many others. So let's begin our study by looking at three facets of the unity and the Trinity. First, the mystery of unity and the Trinity. We'll look at that. Then we'll advance to the unity of God in Scripture And we'll finish with the nature of divine unity. Okay. Again, the three parts. So this is just the first one this Sunday night. Let's begin with the mystery of unity in the Trinity. The term mystery in the scriptures is used in different ways from um, what we normally understand. Um, It doesn't mean something that is hidden from us as much as the inability to understand it completely from a rational point of view or reason of logic. The word mystery is the word mysterion in the Greek. It is found in the New Testament. The word comes from the root word muo, which means to shut the mouth with the idea of unknown or mysterious. But not mystery like Alfred Hitchcock, okay? but just not revealed completely. The word mysterion means something previously hidden, but now made known or revealed. So when it's used, the word mysterion in the New Testament, it means something previously hidden, now fully revealed. That's how the word is used. We'll give you examples of that. Certain things were concealed in the Old Testament in their full understanding but now revealed in the New Testament. I'll give you passages where the word is used so you can see it. In Romans eleven twenty-five, the mystery of Israel's blindness till the fullness of the Gentile is come in is the mystery of the gospel there. Romans eleven twenty-five. The mystery of the resurrection also. So back there in Romans, the mystery of Israel's blindness, it wasn't fully known in the Old Testament. Now we do know that blindness and part is happening to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. So the Jews have, were rejected by Jesus, given up because they rejected him. Blindness upon them as a nation, but when the tribulation and great tribulation comes, the remnant's eyes will be opened. Okay? Now we didn't know that in the Old Testament. Now we know it clearly in the New Testament. Okay, previously hidden, now revealed. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, the mystery of the resurrection and the rapture. All right. In the Old Testament, all we knew that one day the just and the unjust would be raised. And when they died, they went to the same place without distinction. Now in the New Testament, we know there's a very clear understanding of, of the first and second resurrection and the rapture, okay? So, there's a clarity. It's no longer a mystery. The mystery of the gospel of the fellowship for the Gentiles with God in Ephesians 3, 9 is another one. In the Old Testament, it wasn't clearly understood or revealed. Now, we Paul says that, we have fellowship with God as Gentiles. Now the Gentiles never had fellowship with God in the Old Testament unless they proselyted in, right? Now the gospel for Jew and Gentile who repent and become born again. Very clear today. The mystery of the lawless one already at work is also revealed in Second Thessalonians two, seven through eight, but cannot be revealed to the churches removed. So the mystery of lawlessness, we understand Is the Antichrist, and yet he can't appear until the church is removed. Wasn't revealed clearly in the Old Testament, but it is now in the New Testament. Very clear. There's also, in 1 Timothy 3 16, one of these mysteries is the Trinity, as Paul tells Timothy of the incarnation and glorification of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. And without controversy, great is the mystery, there's the word again, mysterion, of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, a human body, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. The promise of Messiah coming was first given in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. The prophets were given progressive revelation. Isaiah 7.14 Behold, a virgin shall bear a son. You call his name Emmanuel. But here he puts it all together. It was veiled to an extent. We knew some things but not everything. The New Testament makes it very, very clear how it came to pass. Paul's benediction to the Corinthians depicts the Trinity. Listen to 2 Corinthians 13.14 The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, which means the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All three. You see the mystery very clearly about the three persons and the unity. All of them. Now, Paul's desire was that the Colossians would understand the mystery of the Godhead revealed in Christ. In, in Colossians 2... One through three, he says, for I want you to know that a great, that I, uh, what a great conflict I had for you and those in Laodicea, as for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So Paul had never been there. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery, mysterion of God, both of the Father and of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So here again you have two of the three being mentioned in unity. Very clearly, it's not hidden, it's not veiled. The unity of the Trinity is God's revelation of himself to man about himself in his Godhead. Who is infinite and transcendent. Infinite. He always is. Transcendent. He's beyond our able to find out to a full end. He goes beyond our intellect. Okay. I still have to learn things. God cannot learn anything. <laughs> he's a little bit ahead of me. Now. In First Corinthians 2. 6 through 10, it says this, This will give the evidence. Paul puts it this way to the Corinthians. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, speaking about the Christian. Yet, not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. But mystery here is not hidden, but revealed. Watch. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God, and so the mystery of God's hidden wisdom—we understand it. We understand the Father sending the Son. We see the Son sending the Spirit. We understand this clearly. The people who crucified the Lord—if they would have looked at Jesus and said, "You know what? Don't mess with him. He's God"—they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of Glory. If you could understand it intellectually, just alone, okay? But God gives us. His spirit gives us his mind and we're able to understand the things of God that he has revealed because we're in the family of God. God, through the scriptures, does not go out of his way to prove the Trinity. He simply states the Trinity as a fact, just as he did regarding his existence. In the beginning, he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it doesn't say, I really did, believe me. He's not trying to convince you. He's telling you what he did. So you have a record for all that you see. And then he goes on to give the previous condition, chaotic. And then how the Spirit of God, the first day, second, third, fourth, the process of creation. Okay? Um, One chapter for creation, literally, in chapter one. If scientists would have written... Or scholars wouldn't have written the creation, they would have had 1,000 volumes. Okay? He's not trying to prove or convince anybody. He's giving you the facts. Now, the problem lies in man's persistent demands to be able to understand everything about the unity and trinity of God by way of his intellect as he would understand mathematics, science, engineering, Or any other subject. Man is finite. God is infinite. Being finite is trying to understand the infinite things of God. There's a problem there. (laughs) God in His sovereignty has chosen to reveal to man a certain amount of understandable truth. Objective truth by the Holy Spirit. That in view of what we can understand by God's grace to be true we can by faith equally be assured that what we cannot understand is just as true as what we do understand. Is that clear? If God has not lied to me in what I can understand, why should I be bothered about the little things or the few things that I don't understand in Scripture? If He's holy, He's true, He's perfect, He cannot lie. What would even suggest that what I don't understand, He's lying? Or that is not objective truth that can be absolutely um, uh, true in itself. It's not rational. Okay? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Faith always points you back to the revelation of God. Not your brain. But we understand by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, the mind of Christ. But we don't understand it to its full end at times. But we do understand so many things in the Scripture. Much like um, I understand electricity... To a certain point. And then I accept it on what I do not understand and receive the benefit. In other words, I know that there's somewhere a power source and it's sent down cables and then into the streets and then from the power, the, um, the transformer there on the pole, they're sent to a building or a house and then it's wired to my electrical panel and from the panel is dispersed through my house. There's a switch on the wall and, um, and, and I know that. But, And I know when I flick that switch, that that light bulb is related to that switch. All right? But does the electricity go through the wire, around the wire? I don't know. Do I really care? No. I know it starts at point A, goes to point B, and it gives me benefit at point C. That's all I care about. It's the same thing with some of the things of God. Two scriptures will help us to see this truth, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. In Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine, Moses declared God would bring Israel back after her apostasy, despite the impossibility. Listen to what he says. The secret things belong to the Lord Yahweh our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The context, again, bringing them back after apostasy. In principle, the secret things belong unto God. Those things that he reveals, they belong to us. But he, what he hasn't revealed doesn't matter to me. All right? The other one is in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, Jesus declares this. Most assuredly, verily, verily, pay attention, this is important whenever you hear that, those words, I say to you, the highest authority, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and do not receive uh, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? (laughs) All right. But again, there's so much that you and I do understand as Christians. Did you believe the begin In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what a miracle that is Did you believe that? Because we're enemies of God. We're rebels. We're fallen. We, we like to contest. We like to do our own thing. That I believe the first verse, then I have no problem with the rest of the Bible. Not whatsoever. Because He created it out of nothing. He's just the word bara, He just spoke it into being. Now, the mystery of, the, of unity in the Trinity is not contrary to reason. Thomas Aquinas talked about the liberating effect of accepting by faith in Revelation such doctrines as that of the Trinity, which cannot be attained to by reason. He said, That mere reason chains us down to what is merely logical, to what our own mental capacities can deduce. Now, there's nothing wrong with reason and deductive reason and inductive reasoning, but we cannot carry that over unto the revelation of God's Word and spiritual things. And yet our faith is reasonable, but it's not based on reason alone. Very, very important. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers of uh, 165 to 220 AD, a theologian of the West, wrote in Latin and said in his important treatise against uh, Praxius, a treatise on the Trinity, quote, This is unity in Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three, but one nature and of reality and of one power because there is one God. Augustine, the most influential church father, 354 to 430 AD, said the following. Now, I'll be quoting Augustine, but then I'll quote Augustine against Calvinism because it came from him. So, we will use some authorities for defense of the faith and we'll also reject them for some of the things they taught. Okay? Not all the fathers were right on and everything. But Augustine here said, quote, No one should wonder... And think it absurd that we should call the Father God, the Son God, the Holy Spirit God. And that nevertheless, we should say that there are not three gods in that trinity, but one God in one substance. Okay? When you think of the trinity, think of this. Do not add one plus one plus one. You come up with three. Multiply. One times one times one is one. Alright? That's one way to look at it. Herbert Lockyer says the following about the Trinity, quote, Our narrow thoughts can no more comprehend the Trinity than a nutshell can hold all the water in the ocean. That's good. The Trinity is above human reason, but not contrary to reason, as Henry Thiessen states. Revelation, and I'm quoting him, concerning A trinity of persons related to one essence. Remember, this keeps being repeated. Essence and nature. One essence contradicts no absolute truth. It is evident that as to wholly separate the individually identified subjects, one is not three, nor are three one. Such is a contradiction. The doctrine of the trinity asserts no such inconsistency because people get caught up in all this logical stuff. Augustine declared his reasoning to the difficulty of understanding the doctrine listen to this quote and I do not doubt that all this was divinely arranged for the purpose of subduing pride by toil and of preventing a feeling of uh, satiety in the intellect which generally holds in small esteem what is discovered without difficulty. The problem is man's pride in every way. And God uses his word to keep us humble. He's in control. He's on the throne. He is the creator. He is God. We are the ones who were created and we are his children. Many illustrations have been used by people in uh, attendance to present a clear picture of the Trinity, but all will fall short if you push them too far, such as an egg has the shell, the white, and the yolk, yet it's one egg. Uh, An orange, the peel, the white of the inner skin, and then the orange. An individual, you and I, we are body, soul, and spirit. Yet I never introduced, hi, this is Xavier's body, this is Xavier's soul, and this spirit. We are an inferior trinity, body, soul, spirit. But you never think of yourselves the trinity, right? God's triune, we're the inferior trinity. Why? Because we are made in the image and likeness of God. Angels are not. They're just Spirits ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. No salvation for angels, no forgiveness for angels, no redemption for angels, only mankind creating the image and likeness of God. So this is the mystery of unity in the Trinity is revealed in Scripture very clearly. Now, let's move to the unity of God. When we speak about the unity of God, we um, are referring to the oneness of, Of the three persons of the Godhead, yet being one God, which is distinct and opposed to the following. It's opposed to polytheism, which is the belief in multiplicity of gods. Poly, many, theism, God, theo, God. Pantheism is the belief that everything is God. Okay, the new age today, a lot of the emergent church is bringing pantheism into the church. Look at the, mother, that's God. and the triad's God. In the '60s and '70s, all the psychedelic drugs and all the uh, invasion of, uh, of um, all the Middle Eastern uh, meditation, a lot of this came in. So it's distinct from polytheism, pantheism, and distinct from tritheism, which is the belief in three gods. Tritheism is not Trinity, okay? It's distinct from dualism, which is the belief in two gods, good and evil, okay? Saracianism, good and evil. In fact, many of the things that we see in many of our movies in the 50s and 60s were portrayed. The white hat, the black hat, the good, the evil, right? A lot of that is like that. It's also distinct from one god, which is the belief in having no trinity, okay? Monism. Now, the scripture revealed the unity of God and expounded throughout the Bible. We've already established that though what is revealed and recorded can be understood to a certain extent clearly by the child of God, but cannot be understood to its full end, right? Now, let's look at Deuteronomy 4.35. And Deuteronomy says, To you, it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is no, none other besides him. The unity of God. No other one besides him. Deuteronomy 4.35 Moses, in recording the Shema of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, four, He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh, God Elohim, is one God. Lord, one. The name Lord is the four-letter that are called the tetagrammaton, big old word, the Y-H, V-H, or W-H, okay? The name Yahweh, the covenant name, all right? So whenever you have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the New King James, it is the name Yahweh, okay? Jesus answer describes the first of all uh the first of all the commandments is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Mark twelve twenty-nine. He's referring back to the Shema. God is the most important. And he says, They're one Lord. God says through Isaiah forty-three, ten, before me there is no God formed, nor shall There be after me. He is it. Isaiah 44, 6, God says, Thus saith the Lord Yahweh, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer. Notice, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord Yahweh of hosts, the Captain of the armies of heaven. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 and 6. Paul says to the Corinthians, But to us there is but one God. Colossians 1, 15. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. The word firstborn is the Greek word prototakos. It means First in rank, supremacy and authority. Not the first to be born as the Jehovah Witness teach that, okay? It's the first in rank and superiority. Paul told Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy two five. There he's giving two persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, the Mediator. There's a distinction of persons yet. One God. To the Hebrews, the author, referring to Jesus, called him the first begotten into the world in Hebrews 1, 6. At a set time, God became man. The first in rank. The first in supremacy. In fact, he is the last Adam. First Adam fell... Last Adam would not fail. Okay? Simple. The first Adam chose to fail. The last Adam would not fail. The first Adam got us in trouble. The last Adam gets us out of trouble with God. If we believe who he is. John calls Jesus the first begotten from the dead in Revelation 1, 5. Now, there are also distinctions between the person's of the Godhead God from spirit in Genesis 1-1 in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and the spirit of God brooded or hovered upon the face of the deep distinction of persons Okay. by the way we'll cover as we move along but just right now before I forget the word God there in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim it's a compound unity L is 1, L is 2 Anytime a Hebrew word ends in a "I am," it is plurality. What a great place to put the Trinity—the very first verse <laughs> in Numbers twenty-seven eighteen. God's Spirit in Joshua: the distinction, and the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, "Take Joshua the son of Nun with you." A man in whom the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of God, and lay your hands on him. So the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, makes a distinction between the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit. Okay? In First Samuel 16:14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Listen but the spirit of the lord yahweh departed from saul and a distressing spirit from the lord troubled him so you have a relation between the lord the father and the spirit but yet they're distinct persons in genesis 19:24 a distinction between yahweh from yahweh listen Then the Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh, rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Okay? So here you have the title of the covenant God making a reference to Him. Then you have the second person, the Son, as we're seeing, and you have the third person, the Holy Spirit. Very distinct. God from God. Listen to Genesis nineteen twenty nine. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Okay? It's very clear who he's talking about. All right? There's also distinction between God from your God in Psalm 45, 6, and 7, which is quoted in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Your throne, O God, the Father speaking to the Son there. Forever and ever, scepter of righteousness and scepter of your kingdom, your kingdom, that's the kingdom of the Son. You love righteousness, talking about the Son, and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, the Father, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness. A distinction between the Father, it's a conversation of the Father to the Son. Very, very clear. God doesn't talk to himself. The Father doesn't talk to himself. (laughs) All right? Yahweh from Adonai by Jesus in Psalm 110.1, Matthew twenty two forty four 44 quotes it. The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, the Lord Yahweh, Lord is all capital letters, Yahweh. Lord is capital L, small O, small R, small D. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Let me translate it. The Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus standing up on high and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Waiting for the Father to make, to give him over the, his kingdom to him. Simple. Two persons. I and Lord from me and sons. Psalm 2.7. Which is quoted in Hebrews 1.5. Listen to the words. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me. The Father has said to me, the Son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Not that Jesus was born and came into existence, but he begot him in the incarnation. Okay? Two persons. Hosea one seven, I from Lord their God. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Will save them by the Lord their God. God and I will not save them by the bow nor by sword or battle by horses or horsemen a very clear distinction me from the one capital O meaning God Micah 5 2 listen but you Bethlehem Ephrata though you are little among the thousands of Judah yet out of you shall come forth to me, the Father, the one to be ruler in Israel, Jesus Christ, who's going forth, are from a vol from everlasting. Literally, from the vanishing point to the vanishing point. He's eternal. Wow. Jesus said, I am the Father, I one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father who sent me. Very, very clear. So the unity of God is throughout the scriptures. They're in unity, yet distinct. Let's finish up with the nature of divine unity. The unity of God is distinct from a unit of absolute one, as we have seen. But it is comprised of a compound unity, yet only one God. In Deuteronomy, the Shema of Israel that we saw there, Deuteronomy um, 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The word one in the Hebrew there is the word akkad, a compound unity. There is another word in the Hebrew to express one as an absolute sense. It is the word yahid but it's the word cat," which means one with a compound unity. Like I gave you the illustration, you are one body, soul, and spirit. The most commonly and frequently used for God is in the Old Testament, Yahid. Um, the word cat" is used for the compound unity to one to express the oneness of husband and wife, though they are two, the two shall become one flesh. Okay? A compound unity. I and my wife are one flesh, yet we're two people. Alright? A compound unity. The word akkad is used for the people is one. Yet there were many in Genesis eleven six. Okay? So he deals with the people as one, yet there are many members. The word one, a cat, is used for Pharaoh's dream being one in Exodus 41, 26. Yet there was more than one, but one because it came from God, a compound unity. It is illustrated beautifully in the New Testament, as Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, 6-8, that... One plants, and one waters, and yet they're seen as one, yet are two. Okay? One plants, one's waters, but God gives the increase. Simple. First Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, Paul says, There are many members in the church, yet one body. Simple. Galatians 3.28, Paul declared that there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond-free, male-female, for you are all one in Christ. Compound unity. Okay? Now, the nature of divine unity is also evident by the plural pronouns related to God by God himself in the Old Testament. Genesis one twenty six says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who's God talking to? The toads and lizards? He's talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a conversation of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. He certainly is not speaking to the angels. The angels are distinct from God. The angels are just ministering spirits. Man has become as one of us, God said in Genesis 3.22. Us, the Trinity. Again, let us go down Genesis 11.7, the Tower of Babel. Let us go down. God said, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Isaiah 6, 8 to Isaiah. It's talking about the Trinity. The three persons. Isaiah says, with who took he counsel? Isaiah 40, verse 13 and 14. Nobody. He doesn't need anybody outside himself. Now, the compound unity of God can also be seen in the plurality of his name, Elohim, that I already gave away to you earlier. The name Elohim is used 2,570 times in the Old Testament. The name El in its root means mighty one, strength. The name Allah in its root signifies to swear. It is similar to the Aramaic word meaning two. The name Elohim is adding a plural ending and would attest to the compound unity of three. As I said, any Hebrew word ending in an I am is plurality. Cherub, singular. Cherubim, plural. Seraph, singular. Cherubim, plural. Okay. Let me call your attention to a few examples in the scriptures which record the name Elohim, and that we might take note of the location. Once again, that great verse, Genesis one one: In the beginning, Elohim created. Plurality. Okay. All three were involved in the creation of God. Here, O Israel, the Yahweh, our Elohim is one, compound unity, Adonai. Again, the Shema 6:4. Yahweh is the covenant name of God, which Moses had declared and God Elohim made a covenant with Moses and with the nation of Israel Exodus 315 and 18 The name I am that I am is a verb form which means to be being or the becoming one it's a verb The idea is of self-existence and eternal aspect. That's what's behind it. Yahweh was to become whatever the need of the people might be. I am that I am. I will be all that you allow me to be. The limitation always comes from us, not from God. He is perfect in wisdom, knowledge, love, his purpose for us. Just like you as a parent, you want the best for your child. But your child, because he's your child and you produce sinners, you've got some problems. They're not perfect kids. In fact, there may come times when they think all you want to do is ruin their life. And though you give them the best advice because you've been around the block a couple of times on your back, some on your face, and you know better, but they don't care. They think you're dumb. You don't know. And so, here again, God wants to be all that we allow Him to be. I am that I am the becoming one. The name Elohim, as we said, is the plurality in name with creative power. The word one, Yahid, the compound unity, as opposed to an absolute one, a Kad. All right? So we have evidence of both when God is trying to make just absolute one and when he's giving us the compound unity of one. Very distinct words that he uses. The title Adonai means master, ruler, or authority equivalent to the Hebrew word kurios, Lord. All right? So you have Yahweh, which is the title, of his covenant name. Adonai in the Old Testament, which is equivalent to Kurios in the New Testament, master, owner, proprietor of you. The servant bows to his master, okay? The Old Testament is more involved in giving emphasis on the unity of God because of the amount of paganism based on polytheism, okay? And you pick that up a lot. In the beginning, there was only one God. That's all there's ever been. Everybody knew that. And as man fell, there became all kinds of different wills, different concepts. And you have polytheism and all the other beliefs, pantheism and everything else. Okay? So, they began with the truth. They distorted the truth. Okay? There's a genuine bill. And there's a lot of phony bills. When there's phonies, there's one original. Are we clear on that? One genuine. Many fakes. All right? Simple principle. Okay? Even as a man and a woman being two become one flesh. Even as the church is one body, yet many members. Even as you are one person, yet body, soul, and spirit. Even so, God is one yet a compound unity of three persons. Very clear through the scripture. So the nature of divine unity is throughout the scriptures also. It's all over. But as we just read it just passing, we don't really study what is being said. And there's there's two different ways to look at the Bible. First is just to read it devotionally, year by year, day by day, so that you can get God's Spirit to minister to you and you put the revelation of God in you. But then at the, time, at the same time, you've got to take time to study the Word of God. You've got to take a book and tear it apart. Read through it, break it down. Uh, start with one chapter books. Jude, okay? Philemon, one chapter. There's an introduction, there's a body, there's a conclusion. There's key divisions where things change. There's key words, key phrases, pivotal terms, locations, places that you have to look up in the encyclopedia. The letter will show you the purpose of the writing. If it was problematic in terms of polemic, there was heresy against it, whatever it is. There's, there, there, all the text mean, meant one thing to the people of that day. It was written with a cultural background, with a problem or a situation, and it was very clear to them what he was talking about. Once we find out what the purpose of that writing was for, for those people in that day, then and only then can we make application to ourselves today. If we don't get the interpretation, then we can make wrong applications. Is that clear? One interpretation, many applications in principle. All right? And that's how you study the Word of God. So I read my Bible... Once a year, twice a year, just forgot to speak to me and feed me. And I know the God's word. But then I take a book and I tear it apart and I study it. And that's why we focus on the study of the word of God here. On Sunday morning, I gave you an in-depth study of a book. That's where we move through it. At night, verse by verse exposition with a full introduction. On Thursday night, I gave you an in-depth study of a smaller epistle. We spent about a year on there. So that you see the word broad and deep. So you study the Bible with first a telescope. You get back so you can see the whole thing. And then a microscope. You go in there. A guy goes to be a doctor. He goes general medicine. Broad. Then his specialty. Surgeon. All right? That's how you do the Bible. No different. And it takes time. It takes commitment. You have the mind of Christ. You have the spirit of Christ. You have the revelation of God. You and I have everything. I have nothing over you. We have different gifts, different callings. But as a child of God, I have nothing over you. I am a man like you. Weak, dependent on God. Frail, sinner, saved by the grace of God. And we're all in this together. Many of us, one body. So, there can be no doubt as to the unity of God throughout the scriptures. About the oneness of the three persons of the Godhead. Yet, one God, as we have seen. By the mystery of the unity and the Trinity. That is no longer a mystery. The unity of God, clearly through the scriptures, and the nature of divine unity. Very clear. Next time, we'll take part two. We'll finish with three. By the time you get done, you should be able to defend the Trinity. Apologetic doesn't mean you say, I'm sorry. It means you defend the faith. Okay? That's what it means. Lord, thank you for your love. Your goodness, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word, Lord. And, and the revelation of truth, which is objective, Lord, it never changes. And help us to understand this. Your word is not relative to culture. It transcends culture. It transcends our, our, our races. It transcends all the junk of the world that is so temperate and corrupt. And so we thank you for that, Lord, that it is ever dependable. And so, Lord, we thank you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're over the internet. God has allowed you to listen. And if your heart is open, God has allowed you to see your need of God as a Savior. And God has allowed you to see that you're a sinner lost in need of God. He is the Savior of the world. He's the Redeemer. He's God who became man who became sin for you, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And by His grace, He calls you to repent from your sin and to ask Him forgiveness. And if you do so, He promises that He forgives you for your sins, buries them in the deepest ocean, casts them as far as east as the west and puts them behind His back and He never remembers them. You will remember them. Because he wants you to remember. How gracious he's been to you. But he will never. Throw them in your face. By grace. Unmerited favor. Through faith. What his word says. About your repentance. That is through the name of Jesus Christ. Who died in your place. Tasted death for you. And made the price to the father. And never lives to make intercession for you. If this is your desire. This is your prayer to the Lord right now right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.